Welcome to Innovation Mixtape, a custom series produced for Omers by Now or Never Ventures. We believe that changing a company from the outside is hard. That's why we have found a collection of gurus, pioneers, and creatives to help us explore market-changing and innovative ideas within pensions, age tech, and building ventures. You'll hear from executives at large organizations such as Standard Life, from some of the most creative agencies in the world, and from leaders who have built game-changing ventures themselves. We hope you enjoy, and most importantly, learn. Today, we are having a conversation with Grant McClellan. Grant is a provocator. He's known for taking a different point of view, challenging the norms and legacy ways of doing things, before often creating bold new products that look and feel completely different to what came before them. Grant is also the founder of Noi. Noi are a team of strategists, designers, and developers who have achieved notoriety for very quickly creating digital products. Some of them include globally recognized products such as Poolside.fm, Exit Brexit, Feels FM, and Binder. We believe there's a lot to learn from the culture of small studios who can stand up new digital products in the time most corporates couldn't have even written the business case. And we think Noi can share some of those secrets that make this possible with you. Um, so yeah, I'm Grant, uh, founder of Noi. We're a small digital product studio based in Glasgow in the UK, um, but we work with people all over the world, which is good fun. Um, People who ask me what is a digital product, which I think is probably like a key question a lot of people are asking right now. Um, I think it's, it, the way I describe it is we solve problems using technology and those solutions are what are classed as a digital product if they're delivered through technology. So right. it can range from anything to a, a static website, to a web app, to a native app, to a voice skill, to a backend AI or machine learning process or like any gamut of technology or code or design or technology strategy comes into play um, to create that solution I define as a digital product. And what's kind of key and central tonight is that we have to focus on a problem to solve as opposed to just applying technology for technology's sake. Um, Our toolbox is digital, it is code and it is design. Um, Therefore, we kind of attack every problem from a digital angle, um, but that's not to say that every solution is right. Every problem is to be solved using digital, but if the problem can be solved through a digital means, that's something we take on. So over the five years, we've done like a wide range of stuff. Um, quite early on, we did stuff for fun. So we did a lot of work in the music industry. Um, we built one of the first uh, Facebook Messenger bots that's called LazySet. And this was a Facebook Messenger bot where you just sent it the name of an artist and replied immediately with a 30-track Spotify playlist. Um, that was featured at the, at the F8 Facebook conference, which is pretty cool. Um, we've built uh, an app for a beer brand that dumped your other half that ended up in the New Yorker. Um, like some less like private stuff like that, but <laughs> it's quite fun. Um, we've done other stuff. We've worked with startups quite tightly to take their first product to market. So we've done that for a charity startup that rounds up uh, spare change on your credit and debit card transactions into an charity. Um, we're working on a food ordering platform for wholesalers. Um, they're an interesting project, but they're much longer term line. Um, quite often when we work with a startup, they're looking at like a two, three, four year time horizon. Whereas we like to get something out to the market within three months or even less. Like for us, build the smallest thing possible um, and get it to market as quickly as possible is really key for us. And quite frankly, that's because I get bored 
<laughs> like if I sit on something for like six months, I'm like, why the hell are we still doing this? Uh, and quite often the, the reason you're in there can be disappeared with competitors, whatever maybe. Um, we do some other interesting works. We work quite uh, closely with Music Worldwide. Uh, we've got some really interesting stuff with them. You may not know this, it's, it's like, I think it's kind of an industry thing, but uh, Spotify playlists are now more important than compilation albums they used to be. So if Ed Sheeran has a new single coming out, the uh, marketing manager for Ed Sheeran finds the top 100 Spotify playlists and has to pitch the track to the playlist owner saying, hey, you run this really popular Spotify playlist. Will you please put this Ed Sheeran track into your playlist? Because if that happens, you're guaranteed thousands of streams. So we built a tool for Warner that used uh, a platform called Amazon Lex, which is a machine learning platform that analyzed each track in a hundred different popular playlists to work out what the key, like the keys or the melodies or the length of tracks or the other types of artists that were in those playlists. So that then a manager could take a track, put it into the algorithm, and it would spit out the top 10 playlists that they should go pitch this track at. So that's another example of some like absolutely random stuff we do. Um, but yeah, I think that the key thing I was going to talk about after talking to Ian yesterday was having solving a real life problem for people is really, really important. Um, the second most difficult thing is having an audience to build for, which it sounds like you have. And the third part is brands or companies solving problems for their either their consumers or who they want their consumers to be to make their lives just a little bit easier, cheaper or faster. And that can be solving a problem that isn't necessarily directly connected to your core product offering, but sits in the same sort of area. Um, I use a really bad like example of how to explain this. And do you ever remember like insurance companies used to send plastic pens in the post to you? It's like branded pen, right? A pen's got absolutely nothing to do with an insurance company at all. But me reverse engineering this thought process is that they identified that occasionally in the 90s or whatever, you'd be on the phone and you'd want to write something down. So user has a problem and they solve the problem by supplying you with a pen. It just happened to be that the logo was on the pen. So next time you go and buy insurance, that insurance company has delivered you some value and that affinity is really there. And the really interesting thing about that is that those plastic pens had a super low marginal cost. Like they're super cheap to produce and send out to people. Exactly the same thing with digital technology. If you build it correctly, it's got a very low marginal cost. It might have a high or medium capital cost, but if you put that over many thousands of consumers, it's a low marginal cost. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, and that's kind of a bit of a background of not, I guess. Uh, but I think the key, yeah, one of the key things that I just to pick up on again is that speed is like super important to us. Like, and again, yeah, is it because we get bored? Well, maybe, but also if we have an idea and we think we can solve a problem, we want to know that that is the right solution as quickly as possible. I think that's what drives us to get stuff to market very quickly. And quite often that can come at the cost of, um, Safety, let's say, and I think that when we've worked with more corporates, like the risk, risk adverse corporates, they really hate this. And I can only imagine the pension area, like the pension space, this is a huge thing. Um, and I was given advice once, which was, uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than give, than ask for permission. And I think that's key in a lot of looser industries. Um, but it'd be interesting to look at the pension industry through that lens in terms of what are the true rules you can't break and what are the rules that can be bent? So just as a, a side to this, um, 
we were pitching for some work that we got with an American bank that has its own stock trading platform. And we were playing about with some concepts. And the question came to us saying, you have no knowledge of the American financial industry or its regulation at all. How are you going to deal with that? And my response was, well, I'm just going to ask why. And then when the legal team says the reason, I'm going to say why. And then they're going to say another reason, I'm going to say why. And the more you say why, the more you take the onion apart. You know, this lawyer has built his whole career around regulation. And the more you just take off the pieces, you get down to the core nub of why you can't do something, it's usually quite easy to, like, walk around or pick a different angle on it and you get past that thing. Um, so, yeah, that's quite interesting. But there you go. There's a, there's a whole whole backlog. So it's so interesting about the finding a problem that they have. And we kind of have this identity crisis as a pension plan of like, what are the, what's within our right to solve? You know, there's things that we can say is like, oh, that person's obviously having a problem. Like, should we be doing that? Should their bank be doing that? Should their financial advisor, should their mom be doing that? You know what I mean? It's, it's really, uh, for us, like we're not a hospital. So there's a lot of kind of health and wellness problems, which we probably would have an insight on, but would they trust us? And then there's also a lot of stuff that's, day-to-day banking and not really pension related so um that's also doesn't feel like it's within our remit so i'm wondering how you kind of advise your clients in your startups to find that like perfect venn diagram of like problem to be solved but also something that you're credible to be solving for them yeah that's that's interesting fair and i think it it involves a lot of the positioning of the business the, the umbrella business of that um and, you know, use a pension business. Are you a pension business or are you like a wealth protection business or a security business for the future? Like what, if you reframe that part, that's quite interesting. But I understand that that's a lot more political, it's a lot more long term, etc. I think my advice is always if someone else isn't solving it, it's free game for someone to do. And that can be not, you don't have to attach your name to it. Like you can do it as a skunk works off the side and just create like a loose connection between the two businesses. Because what's the worst that's going to happen is you're going to create some IP and some traction in a market that maybe is slightly out with your bounds, but still value you're creating for your core business. So if it came to a point where you just sold off that piece, that's fine. If you could also use it as a customer acquisition tool for your main business, you could play lots of different things. Um, I, I guess, though, internally, you maybe have to warrant that to other stakeholders. So why the hell are you playing with health from a pension business? That would be more tricky. I think it'd just be creating any link between the core product and the offshoot. Makes sense. And I think the way you frame it is probably key to that. So to me, pension is about security, wealth, aging. Um, it's about growing, I think, as a person. And if you can tie those things together, I think it opens up quite a range of opportunities or problems that you can solve. So I think to kind of bring that together, it's about reframing the big problem your business solves in the world and then applying that to smaller problems. Yeah, that's that's really that's really interesting and helpful. And like we were doing a little bit of this thinking ourselves and like we kind of joked that we're in the crystal ball business of what other business can actually project out like with 100 percent accuracy your income 30 years from now. And, yeah. You know what I mean? It, and it helps. It's not just like in general terms, but to give people certainty so that you know you can plan on this factor in your life staying the same come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that allows people to do things really interesting, like, like build a legacy. And mm-hmm. that's where we're starting to see a bit of an opportunity of the more um, 
tangible pieces of like, yeah, you've, you've left these good feelings and you've lived a retirement, you've been able to pass them up. Like, what does it look like, right? Uh, and particularly on the hypothesis that a lot of the, the boomer generation is a little bit more narcissistic and really focused on themselves. So um, we're, we're, we're starting to see some interesting shoots coming off of like reframing the pension as not only uh, certainty, but also leaving a legacy. And I'm curious as to if you've seen anyone do interesting work in that area. Um, nothing necessarily comes to mind. I was going to kind of reframe that a little bit. Of, it's not just the problem that the business solves, but the problem the business solves in the context of society around it. There was one experiment we did last, just over a year ago, and we were thinking about joint accounts and like relationships and things like this. And we were coming up with the hypothesis that traditionally you may have found a partner maybe got serious, married, joint bank account, and you're like locked together financially at that point. But we saw in life that you may be moving with a partner after you know, like three years of dating, four years of dating, and then one of you pays for Netflix, the other one pays for Spotify, one pays for dinner, and we created the system using open banking, which we have in the EU, that you can have a joint ledger, but they're separate, but they're together, and then just send a bill every month to one of you saying you owe them 10 whatever the case may be. And I think that would be interesting to apply that same sort of hypothesis to pensions. Now, I don't know any, essentially how pensions work when we started thinking about it like six months ago. But does, is there like joint financial, is there joint legacy in that? Like how does, that would be an interesting thought perhaps to go down, I think. Um, so you see what I'm trying to say is like the problem you solve changes in the context of society as society moves along the sides of it. Yeah, that no, that totally makes sense. The the pension is a family asset. Like they've got beneficiaries, they've got beneficiaries of beneficiaries, they've got a support network around them, all all these people who are actually benefiting in some way from this singular asset. And it's an interesting way of looking at it and I think we've only we haven't even scratched the surface on how that looks. I think there's, I, I can only imagine as well that there's, so you mentioned about um, age groups and things to that degree. And I think that is really key um, because we're coming to a point in some of the work we're doing where we realize we're designing for ourselves and that's a really dangerous place to be in, right? We're all like pretty young, pretty well off, thankfully, for like the jobs we do. Like there's lots of, as much as we drop and build a diverse team, there's only so, well, that's not true, only so much diverse, but you know what I mean? It'd be difficult to hire a 70-year-old, maybe, let's say, to the entire business, but we, you may be designing for that age group. And I think that's interesting. In some of the stuff we've been doing recently, we've been building into like SMS instead, and like even building like, you can build like smart call centers on top of Twilo, and like AWS have a whole system for like call center stuff. So I think the view of digital and what, tools are available is much wider than some people imagine as well. Sorry, that's a bit of a random thought off the side, but that's the current. <laughs> but in terms of how, like, the way that you can go and build a digital product these days, oh, yeah. compared to like, what it used to be, which was, like, going back to the old days of very waterfall, very heavy, like, big decisions, like, often, like, time-consuming and pushing, like, almost like kicking decisions down the road to the point where they're compromised. Yeah. Yeah. compared to now, which is like more in vogue to be assembling digital products versus building digital products, leveraging what's available. Yeah. It's going to be really, really good in some cases. Like Alex has a point of view on this in terms of like you can go and buy a startup 
and by buy, a corporate buying a startup, that might be cool for the idea, but mm. the technology platform that comes with it actually becomes a bigger hindrance to the idea than just doing it yourself. Yep. Um, but done properly, assembling a digital product can be a really like fruitful way to go and solve something and go and test it. What's the smallest possible thing that we can go and test to prove this versus the way that it would, would have been done traditionally, right? So as a, a team that, you know, I guess a third of our business is going coding the thing, some of our advice to clients is you don't need us, you can just go do it yourself. So like you can very much go and test an idea using things like Airtable, which is Zapier and like all the, you, you'll know all these tools. And a lot when when a startup comes to us and asks us for advice, that's the first thing we say. We say we'll be interested in working you, with you when you sort of show us some sort of traction or at least some sort of effort that you've gone and done to try and solve this problem using your own tools. In terms of like the difficulty of building stuff nowadays and how that's dropped, um, as I mentioned, like AWS, so using Amazon Lex to do machine learning. That's amazing that we could just like do machine learning in like a hundred lines of code or something. Where like five years ago, that's insane. That's like a supercomputer you haven't used. Um, we laugh when we're in pitches and we're told about how another vendor, another business like ours, has scale is like proposed they rent a, a server and a server farm in order to power this thing. We're like, who the hell does that anymore? Like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to do that. Everything's being offloaded onto someone else, so that you, all you have to do is plug the pieces together to make it work. Uh, but at the same time, it's how granular you go into that kind of jigsaw, if that makes sense. So if you use Airtable and Zapier, they're quite big blocks that are quite immovable and quite uncustomizable. If I use AWS, I can do things to a certain degree that are on a more granular level. Or if I went and set up my own server, I can do it even more granular level. Um, and what you'll find, I think, when buying startups is the technology is, they're much more comfortable with the technology never being finished. It's always getting better. Whereas I think in corporates, they look for the, the technology is done, like tick that box. It's safe, it's secure, it's performing. Like, a lot of the stuff we do, we talk about is uh, lollipop sticks and duct tape. Like, it just needs to work. And then we get questions like, oh my God, this works for like 100 people, but what if it scales to 10,000? I'm like, that would be a brilliant problem to have. If it gets to like 5,000, we'll start like scrambling to get the pieces together because it's not only about that agility to move fast at the beginning of something, it's the agility to move fast as the thing grows or changes. That's the real key, I think. Um, because it's dead easy to make stuff fast and get out into the world and then forget about it. Like we're probably quite bad at that for internal projects where we build something. We'll we'll have a we'll see something in our head, a problem, we'll solve it, we'll push it out into the world, it will get some sort of traction, and then we're just like, ah, cool, that that was fun. But the real work is getting that thing and pushing it harder and harder and harder until you run into the problems like scaling and then you fix them. Um, but those kind of plans sometimes don't sit very well on like a board level or, or something to that degree. They look for something that's much more like this, then this, then this, then this, then we're done. Um, so I guess that's a cultural thing. I guess you need to speak more to that, like of how you bring the culture around to, to uh, be okay with that. I think maybe from a point of view of you as an innovation department inside a corporate, being able to protect the team so that they can do things like that is um, is part of your role, I guess. Uh, how do you make sure stakeholders are happy with what's happening while not putting uh, a limit on uncertainty in terms of the people who are executing? Um, because 
and thinking back to some projects we've not done is because people have asked what's going to happen in six months time and the question the answer we have is we don't know something's going to happen in six months but we can tell you what's happening definitely in three weeks uh, in six weeks you can kind of guess like any further we're just absolutely making complete guesses um which is the way it goes i guess and you should get you guys if you've had that innovation department for a while you'll know there's success and there's failure but you've kind of got to keep flowing through yeah we're kind of earning our credibility right now doing you know core system projects like stuff that needs to get done anyways we're lending an innovation mindset so that way the user is not completely forgotten but then on the side which is really the purpose of these calls is like what are those really interesting cool ideas that no one else is going to come up with and how do we carve that out so we can say oh and by the way there's also this totally way totally different way of like reframing what our members experience from us and kind of doing both simultaneously so what's your incentive like tomorrow to do that thing is your incentive tomorrow to appease someone else within the organization or is it to actually get traction in the outside world Incentive for which the the core of the transformation for the for the interesting stuff. It's it's all internally driven. So it's very similar. And like I'm laughing because we've got we have this like big vision multiple years out for what the world should look like. We have immediate term like I know what we're doing for the next two weeks on our project teams. We've got um, structures and stuff like that. But like that middle. There's a, a million ways that you can go about it. So it would be disingenuous for me to put together a strategy and tell someone, hey, like, in two years, you can expect these products. I'm like, do you have some, like, North Stars in terms of you want to increase the number of people that use you as your pension provider or you want to interact so, with people who are 20-something? So, so there's kind of two things. One is we have an objective uh, – like ambition, which is to create a, a billion dollars of value for our members. Like that's additional incremental value than what they get on the pension. So in the same way that Google is free, but people would actually be willing to pay like several thousand dollars to do the things that it does for you. So we're looking at it from, you know, if you would have to go pay an external financial advisor to do this, or if you value your time at a certain rate, or if you value your connection to your community at a certain rate, and we can start to add those up over time by 2025, like a billion dollars of value, things like that. That's more, it's ambitious, but it's also that board appeasement. It's like, okay, you've created material value. But then the second piece is really, how do you embed innovation thinking? I mean, like foresight and strategy and, and this way of uh, seeing the world into the very fabric of the company, right? So it's, it's part of the strategy cycle and it's part of a global asset manager and the investment decisions you make all coming back to um, the world's not gonna be the same tomorrow as it is today. And there are things that we can do about that. Yeah. So when I get asked similar questions around that topic of innovation, like I don't really class ourselves as doing innovation. Like it doesn't feel like a thing we do. It's not a process we go through. It's just what we do. And I think maybe we're really lucky in the sense that that's just our natural way of being. But I often think of innovation to me is the um, commercialization of an invention. And you have to invent, first of all, in order to do the entire process of invention. And inventing, to me, is just, like, seeing a problem and then just hacking around it and, like, trying to figure out what goes on. I don't, do you have a show, a, a TV show called Wallace and Gromit in Canada? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So it's this guy that's, like, in a shed. He's just, like, mocking around. That's exactly what invention is. That's what we do and then we take it to, he's like, I told my hero when I was a kid. Uh, the business part of night is the commercialization of that invention. But to me, a process around invention is, is, is tricky 
to me, it's about having the audience and the insight and then being able to build something off the top of it. And just go back in the earlier point, like audience is one of the most important things and the most valuable things you can have. And you having like, essentially you've got a huge customer base or interaction with a lot of people, that is like unbelievably valuable in the sense of pulling insight from that customer base and two, having a customer base who can go and test things out for you. And that, that's amazing. I think you should really double down on that. Have you found like when you work with more corporate clients, Brian, that you, is there a different dynamic to how you go and build things? So like when you go and do things for yourself, like you can like, I always remember the exit Brexit thing that you showed me when we first met, which was just like so obvious, so simple, but like the passion obviously behind it must have like fueled a lot of that going and getting that sort of thing done. How does that change when you work with a, in a more of a corporate environment where there might be things that you're told you can and can't do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for information, exit Brexit, you may have heard that some idiots in the UK decided to vote to leave the EU. And there was like, the question at the time was, how do you put pressure on your MP in order to make your opinion heard? So one day in the office, someone came in and they were like, oh, we should, we should build something that's to do with Brexit. And we're like, okay, cool. We're like, well, if we oppose Brexit, what would we do? Oh, well, we go and write to our MP. And we're like, okay, cool. How do you do that? Well, first of all, who's your MP? I don't know, right? So you Google like MP for my postcode and then you have some random website and then you try and find their email address on this website. But all the websites are completely different. And then once you've got their email address, you have to think of what you want to say, like your emotion and your objection to this thing and the same thing. So it's quite an annoying process. So we just built a tool like literally in two days um, where you came to it, you pressed the geolocate button. So it worked out where you were. From that, we could automatically work out who your MP was. From that, we had a database of email addresses. And then we got a friend of ours to boilerplate an email. So it literally just boilerplate everything for you. You press the button, it copied it into your email and you sent it. And that was it. And we got, I think it was like 70,000 people in like a couple of days used it. So that's a clear example of like, here's a problem and it's pretty hard to solve it through any other methods. We can use digital technology to make that thing so much easier. Um, yeah, if that was corporate, we, it would have been really difficult to do on like so many levels. Uh, it's politically biased, it's risky, there's like uh, marketing or brand image implications onto it, lots of different things. So times when we've had that in the past, I guess there's been a couple of things that have been great. One is having a sponsor within the business who's happy to take the buck if it comes back. And protecting. So that comes back to the point. I'm thinking when we worked in Warner Music doing some stuff that the, we kind of work within their innovation department. The leader of that would be like, Oh, don't worry about Max. I'll deal with it. Whatever happens. Um, in other instances, I've said I don't care and just carried on anyway, which is not the best thing. Um, for instance, the, uh, I mentioned the joint bank account thing that we built. We pitched that, well, some, a bank heard we were doing it, a bank in the UK called Clydesdale heard we were doing it, and uh, came to view a demo of it with us, and they were looking at it, and they're like, you know you're breaking like loads of FCA rules. You're not allowed to show transactions. And I was just like, I don't care. Like, like, why are you trying to stop this thing happening? Now, that's completely ridiculous in the sense of, like, if you're a corporate that has any sort of... Um, uh, governance, etc. you wouldn't be doing that sort of thing. So I guess, come back around, the question is how do you get away with risky stuff within corporate environments? I guess frame the risk correctly and show that maybe it's not such a big risk. 
if you're testing with real users, make the pot of real users quite small or quite defined. So you've got that test bed. I think if you've got a large audience, it would be interesting if you could curate a test bed of users who'd be interested in trying new things from you. And then that limits your risk exposure. Like, is it possible or advisable to do risky things in a big organization? Like, can innovation survive in this context? Or should you either get a partner to do it under their cover or spin it out completely? Uh, well, I'd always say a partner to do it under their cover, right? <laughs> like, well, I guess, so right, you're thinking that in the sense of, is who does the blame lie with if it goes wrong? That's effectively it. Um, and I think, I'm trying to think more of what would I do, and this is quite tricky because I'm not that person. I think, I'll say from my point of view, when we work within large corporates, how do we feel with that blame element to it? And all we try and say is, as an appeasement, is if this fails, we fail, and we feel bad if we fail with you. So you've got our blood, sweat, and tears, and like what we truly believe. So as much as I'm trying to be blasé of like, oh, just do it, like, if we think it's wrong, we'll stop. So I mentioned we, we built this app for dumping your other half that ended up in the New Yorker. It used a service called Twillow that like phoned people up and dumped them down the phone. And then like a week into it, I realized like that's completely illegal and you're not allowed to like anonymously phone people up. So I phoned the client up and was like, yeah, there's a huge mistake here. And you're like a massive risk of exposure. You should definitely shut this thing down now. And they were like, thanks very much for telling us. We should probably do that. But like, you see, at that point, I understood that we could have gone away with it and that we would have been blamed and whatever. But I think the shared responsibility and the shared understanding that our failure is your failure. And not only on a business level, but like on a personal level. Um, there's another project we did at Warner that didn't turn out well. It was, um, did you use Discover Weekly on Spotify? It's like a playlist that gets generated every week. So we were building that like before Spotify built it. And it got delayed a few times the project. And then what happened was Discover Weekly came out and we hadn't finished and launched. And this was a project that was sponsored by the CEO of Warner UK. And my client was a guy just in the business who had this idea and pushed it up. And to feel that guilt of like, fuck, like, this is a big deal because the whole project got canned because in the music industry, if someone else does it, it's not even worth like following anymore. So I guess it's important for any partner you use that they have that shared emotional and gut uh, alignment with you. And that's, that's tricky, especially if you hire one of the big four, but they don't care. <laughs> um, I guess the spin-out one's quite interesting. I think there's a failure in... I, I don't think an internal startup can ever have the same... Um, cadence of speed uh, than an external startup. I just, I think it's impossible because an external startup is everything to someone or a couple of people. And internally, it might be very, very important to someone, but they're still going to go home and that's their job. And that that's absolutely fine. But sometimes it takes the up at 3 a.m., like, like for us, when we work with some of our startup clients, if there's a bug at 3 a.m., we get up and fix it. Like, how do you keep that kind of motivation and drive internally? I, I imagine would be quite difficult in an internal startup. Um, the other part, I just quickly touch on it. There's another business we were working in where the innovation was seen as the fun thing. 
and it was like the treat team part of the innovation team. That was absolute garbage because you just got idiots. Like you have to be part of it on the basis of your skills as opposed to you're the favorite of the line manager and you see this the cushy little job over there. That's fun. You're you cool. Go work with startups and like code and learn it. Yeah, that's fun. Like, no, I think that's absolutely rubbish. Do you do design sprints much in your organization? So there's a lot of businesses similar to us that will run those and people get invited to the design sprint over the week. And I cannot stand them. There's a phrase, uh, garbage in, garbage out which is exactly what they define. And this sounds really big-headed to say this sort of thing, but the quality you put into an innovation team is very important because it dictates the quality that goes out of it. Um, and just from my perspective, a lot of corporate innovation is sometimes seen as the, like, the fun job, because it is the fun job as well, but you yeah. you've got skills in it. It's like playing golf is the fun job for some people, but the rubbish at golf, you shouldn't play golf. <laughs> because... Um, is super delicate, I think, and an idea is really delicate. And the wrong person who doesn't have the skill set, but maybe thinks they have the skill set, can absolutely suffocate something before it has the chance to to evolve into something. So I guess the key takeaway from that is that the teams you apply and the personalities and the skill sets you apply to any opportunity need to be really finely curated. Because otherwise, yeah, as I said, they just get either rubbish ideas get pushed to the top or good ideas get pushed down because people don't know how to. I think a lot of innovation thinking is about how you look at things as opposed to making direct analysis on things. So you need to be able to go, I know what you're thinking, and I think you're slightly wrong, but from this angle, it's more interesting. So you see it's a lot more touchy-gilly, where if you have someone that's from a finance background, an analyst background, it's very much that is right or wrong, and that's not the case at all. It's some things need tweaking slightly, I think. How do you find it when you work with like a client and they, they push their own people onto you? Uh, yeah, that can happen. Um, so, one of the like key pillars of the way we work at Noi is uh, we work together. And the sense of that is we're experts at what we do and you're experts at what you do. We can teach you and you can teach us. But the undercurrent to that is you don't tell us what to do that we're the experts at and we don't tell you what to do what you're the experts at. The part of why I love what we do is that you get to speak to and learn from people who are experts in fields that you know nothing about. And for me, when I hear that information, I think, or new information, it makes me think of ideas, which they may not have thought of. So we're working in a project, another project in America, uh, that's in the alcohol industry, and it's about selling direct to consumer. And in the US, you can sell direct to consumer because of the three-tier system from prohibition. And it's amazing to listen to someone explain this problem to me because I've never heard it before. And I'm like, oh yeah, but what about that? I'm like, what about this? What about I think that's really interesting. So when you're giving the right people to investigate, it's absolutely a, like a gift. When you're giving people to execute with, that's where it gets more challenging and we've had trouble with in the past. So, oh, can you help us execute this new proposition? We're going to develop it, but we're going to give you a designer, a UX designer to do it. And you're like, okay, cool, but like, do we have to teach them how to do it? Or like, are they going to be good enough? And that's, it sounds again a bit big-headed, but you don't get, like a sports team doesn't take someone on just for like, because they've been told to. It's, you know, I think, I think that alignment can be quite difficult sometimes. And I think the other part is sometimes it makes us move slower. 
one of the sales I guess we get for Noi is that we are product teams that are already together and have processes and know the working arrangements of each other so that we're like an engine that's ready to go as opposed to this kind of engine that has to come together and eventually start up and then kind of start moving. So I think that's key that you keep that working arrangement. So on short-term engagements, I would suggest it's not a good idea to add your own people into the execution mix, but is a good idea on the kind of ideation stage or the development of an idea. The other part there, which I was doing some work recently helping an organization write an RFP, and it was essentially came to the point where don't tell us how to do it, just tell us what you want the future to look like. I think that's the, for a, a vendor like us, that's the best type of brief. So we want an increase of 3,000% in the interactions with our customers through, through this problem. Like that's a great, great way, place for us to work on. As opposed to, could you please go and build this app and it looks exactly like this and it works exactly like this? Because that doesn't leverage our skill set. So in terms of picking any vendors, it's really important you pick the ones which not only can execute what you need them to execute, but don't want to execute more than you want them to execute, if that makes sense. Because if someone like us, we get super frustrated if we're told what to do. <laughs> do you ever challenge your clients on the vision of the future that they have? Absolutely, because otherwise I don't think we're adding any value to them at all. There's... When we were working with Warner, I met at a lunch meeting with the CEO of, of the worldwide uh, business. And we're going up to his office to have lunch and with like four of his members of staff and they're all a bit like uptight kind of da -da -da. Like, you know, we're going to see the big, 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 big boss. And I was like, okay, cool. And then we go in and he starts saying something. And I was just like, nah, nah, I think you're totally wrong. And like everyone in the room is like, oh, you can't say he's wrong. Like, but I'm just like, if I'm him, I don't want everyone to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Like, uh, have strong opinions loosely held is the way I like to think. So I will have an opinion, but if you if you give me a good reason why, I'm quite happily switch my opinion. Um, so in terms of disagreement, I, I think that's a, a healthy thing to have, a disagreement, as long as you, at the end of it, uh, converge back on the same path. <laughs> I think the other, the other thing is, um, just going back to like, if you were to, on that kind of outsourcing versus enhancing, there's a very fine line where you tell your vendor or partner what to do and crossing that line is absolutely killer. So in terms of, for us, that can be very simple things like changes to the UI or something or the way something works. And you can, it's like you, you step over the line once, it's kind of okay, you do it twice, everyone starts to get a bit de demotivated and you're having a fight. You do it a third time and then just give up and they're like, okay, cool, you can just have it, everything you want you can have, and we don't care anymore. And that is going to result in a pretty awful experience for everyone. It's really interesting, actually. Like, that, like as you're saying, I'm going back through like a load of RFPs that I've seen in my old life, where it was like, we want you to do this thing this way, mm. not we want you to achieve this thing. That's fine. Though there's businesses that thrive on that, and that there's people who hire those businesses because all they need is the re they need the fingers on the keyboard writing the code that makes the thing happen. It's absolutely fine. That's just not what we do. <laughs> I think, yeah. So it's, it's really important to understand your vendor or partner, whatever it is, what they want to do as well as what you want to do, um, because the alignment there is really unhealthy. So then if you're in our shoes and you're looking to the future, uh, where would you be looking? What, generally? Or open egg? 
Um, I think pensions full stop is just an interesting space because not many people think about it. I, 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 again, I can only speak from my own experience here. Um, it's this thing which you kind of know should exist, but you never interact with it in any kind of meaningful way until it's almost too late or right on the precipice of being too late. And I think that's because the buying decision is so obscure. I don't know what I'm paying for. Like, I can't visualize security in my 80s or 90s or, what, or 60s, whatever the case may be. So it's to me, and this again is only what I feel, is this thing you think you should do, but you don't know why you should do it, but the pressure becomes high enough that you just give in and do it anyway. So I'd be exploring what what is the value of a pension? What is a pension buy? What is a pension? And this is maybe all work you've already done, and then building tools or services around that that exemplify that thing you're getting or, or, or coming to. Or is there other things like, if it's about planning or security in the future, what if there was tools around making other decisions that could impact you financially? So I'm thinking things like, if I'm going to switch job, like, can I take a pay cut? Like, what is a calculator look like? What does that mean? Like, or long-term financial planning? Like, how does that, and I don't know how that fits into your business, if it's just kind of more long-term financial planning in terms of pensions, or is it about investment ideas and stuff like this? It's, I think, again, speaking from someone of my age, that, there's no tools that enable you to plan your financial life like really simply. Does that make sense? I think, and, and being really sharp on those tools. There's a project we worked on with a startup who came to us for a bit of consulting advice. And there's a guy, he's probably in his like 50s, worked in like finance a long time, just quit like a big bank. And he came in and he's like, right, what I want to do is start a digital bank for millennials. And I was just like, no, you don't. Like, everybody's done that. What the hell are you talking about? And what we got to was, let's, like, let's solve financial problems for that age group. And we were like, what's the biggest financial problem that people of that age group have? And anyway, in the UK, it was about buying your first property and how you save the deposit to do that. So that's the whole business is focused around that at the moment. There's another thing in the UK called the Lifetime ISA, where basically if you save money through an ISA, the government doubles your money and gives it to you. I didn't know this until the week before I bought a house and was like, why did nobody tell me this thing existed? And banks don't tell you because they're not incentivized to do it. So they're not solving the problem, but this startup had very well could do that because so they'd gone into creating their own ISA and like the financial transactions that happened between it and all that kind of stuff. So the whole point of that is being, it's about widening your view of what the future looks like and the problems that exist within it and then narrowing it right down into one of those problems and creating a really tight, sharp solution to it, which also lends itself to being built very, very quickly because the tighter it is, the less scope group there is, the less complexity there is, the less uh, scale you have to make for it initially. Um, but bring it back to like kind of pensions, for me it's about, um, yeah, that, that thing of, it's very delayed um, gratification on a pension, like super delayed. And I think, how do you reframe that? That's just the one part of it, I guess. But then there's a whole lot of like aging problems to be solved as well. Yeah. Like it's about your future, it's about pre preparation for your future. And what other things do people need to prepare for things that are, what other things are uh, delayed gratification? There must be other things in life that are delayed gratification as well. 
as a it's interesting looking at like the problems that you have at various stages. It's all about digital bank for millennials, but actually it's like buying a house. Yeah, like a big problem for like younger people. Like if you're in your like late twenties, early thirties, and you're making these pension contributions, actually like you by the time you've paid your rent, you've paid like your living expenses, you've like spent a chunk of money on booze, and then you've got your like at the end of that there's like actually not that much left. And you look yeah. at it, like the, uh, there's this massive like noose around your neck of your pension contributions, effectively, that you don't understand what that's going to be like later. But then yeah. when you're 65 and you've made those contributions and the money starts to come in, it might be like, oh, actually, I don't have a mortgage to pay. I don't have like grand aspirations of what I'm going to spend all this money on. And it ends up going like back down the line. So like the problem ends up becoming as a 65 year old, I want to give money to my grandchildren. How, what's the best and most tax efficient, interesting? Really interesting. And I like, see the, the problems of one age and another age end up like being connected in a way. Yeah. Yeah. There's also that time horizon limits your choices on how you can prepare. So up until a few years ago, my pension plan was I'm going to get rich and like that, that would be fine. But when you're 60 or 65, you're like, okay. I haven't got time to get rich anymore. So, like, do you see the, your options become much, much more narrower as your time horizon moves forward? Um, you play the lottery. Yeah, like, but that's like legitimate. That's the competition. Like, in a lot of people's minds, will be um, at least you get gratification from the lottery. I guess, like. Now this sounds like completely stupid and like from a, like a complete like millennial point of view, but can I like defer contributions from month to month? Can like can you right now? Yeah, could I do like a January, February, skip March, skip April, May, June, July? You. You can right now, but it's interesting you mentioned home ownership because we did a case study competition with a bunch of first and second year university students, and that was the winning idea. Like basically, they said, "I want to defer my contributions early so I can save for a house and then pay more double when I'm 30 or 40." And like as a value proposition for an employer, it's amazing. Like, and this is where we there's the good ideas, and I don't want to let the policy or what regulation says we can and can't do. This is very clear. Like. That would be illegal. However, it's still a good idea. This is what I'm thinking. Like, what are the alternative ways that we can start to solve some of these problems without touching that core calculation? Seems like streaks were quite interesting. So, like, you know, you're on one, two, yeah. three, four. I don't want to skip it. But like, is there like a benefit you can have for like the longer you? It's called interest, I guess. Well, like, I guess kind of right. But like, how do you reframe that? Um, Yeah, that's what you said, like brought to mind what Netflix says. This is like our biggest competitor is sleep. And he's like our biggest competitor is a pension is the lottery. Right. Like that way of thinking. Yeah. There's something there. There's there's really something there. Right. Because you're you're buying and that's how they pitch it. That's how the lottery is like you're buying a dream. You're buying that boat when you buy this two dollar ticket. Yeah. You're buying fun. Buying fun. Whether whether the fun is the two dollars worth of like scratching a ticket or whether that the risk and the reveal of that risk, you won or didn't win. It happens instantly, doesn't it? Yeah. Why is it that the stress that it comes with putting a money putting money into a pension that like ultimately you trust and you know is gonna turn into something at the end. Yeah. But it's like when you're trying to it's when you're like shopping online, the thing that you'll like the thing that has like an emotional attachment, like camp like I think Rory Sutherland always uses the example of camping gear. Where it's like if you're in the shop that camping gear that's like a nicely packaged like tent or sleeping bag 
suddenly becomes much more desirable when you're in the shop looking at and going like, oh, it's exactly going to look like that on my backpack and it's going to fit yeah. my car and whatever it might be. Until then, the experience that you get when you're actually camping is yeah. like not that level of utility that you were sold. Whereas yeah. camping is the other way around. It's like you're sold this thing. Like, you know, you know, you should do it. You know, it's the right thing. But it just like you don't feel the excitement or the value yeah. of it. Like when you buy a consumer good. Yeah, so it's like, imagine that you can leave some money to your grandkids in 60 year time. You're like, I have no, like, that is so far in the future. There's probably going to be another pandemic and we're never going to get there, right? So, so that's interesting. It's, it's the most delayed purchase. It's like the longest time you have to, like, pay for some, like, pay up something to receive it, almost it feels like. It's not when the check starts coming to you in the mail and or like you start getting that direct deposit in your bank account. You don't look at that monthly payment going, that was so worth 30 years. <laughs> because you've probably given up income from other sources. So your your net income is probably the same. Nothing has changed except you don't go to work anymore. You, know, you could just have a business that lends you the money, like rather than, so you're always making your contributions. Um, so that's the way I think of it. When it comes to like regulation like that, I'm like, well, yeah, satisfy the regulation. But from a user's point of view, it's still going to feel the same. If somebody's essentially paying your contribution for you, but all they're actually doing is just offsetting the same amount. So if your pension contributions regularly, it almost makes you more credit worthy to buy a house. So it's like, it's a trade off between like buying a house and pay and like being in the pension plan. Yeah. At that point, do you end up like, how do you end up satisfying both needs? Because at the end of the day, both are really long term things. It's just one comes with bricks and mortar right away and one, one doesn't. How much say does a person have in where their money's invested in the pension fund? None. That's interesting. I've seen a trend recently. Um, you maybe have Robin Hood, the app, Robin Hood. There's one called Free Trade here. Like I picked 20 quid into Free Trade and that was worth 40 pounds and I think I'm like Warren Buffett. But basically like being able to make very slight, like almost gamified kind of aspects to your money management, I think. Is that something that would be possible? You know, in the UK, there's, I'm sure you've got some like uh, green investment banks or, or things like that. So I, I'm quite happy for my money to be invested in Saudi Arabian arms, but maybe not over like oil pipelines, but maybe some other people want them in environmental things. And that would, it would make me feel, if someone feel gratification for their investment much earlier because it's doing much more to the greater good or whatever their incentive may be in terms of investment. Yeah, that's because we're like we actually own as a pensioner, you you invest in stuff that no one else in the world actually gets access to, like big infrastructure deals and, and yeah. nuclear power plants and stuff like that. So it's actually kind of a benefit. But it's an interesting concept of if you could pick like the sustainable option or the, you know, the tech option or the real estate option. Yeah. And I guess from a. Well, that that'd be interesting just as a whole to understand where your pension, your money, your contributions are going. Like I don't know how you communicate that much, or much maybe people are interested. I think Ian mentioned like London City Airport is like one of your assets. Mm -hmm. I don't know what pension fund did that. Like it's kind of interesting, and maybe there's some sort of aspect around that. Um, like you own a little piece of an airport, I guess, to a certain degree. I think the other part is like the community aspect of a pension fund. Like you're all in for the greater good of each other. Um, that's quite interesting. And I think 
might have benefits if there was downturns or something. You know, you, it's a shared risk you're all taking, and you're because um, I guess that's where pension funds maybe I'm thinking like traditionally would have come about from. I'm quite I'm quite a fan of looking back to why things were created in the first place. So when we were talking to the startup about the digital bank, we were like, well, in the day when the banks didn't exist, and then the next day there was a bank, what was the reason for that bank existing? And like, I don't actually know what it was, but like, I assume it was like wrong, and like you were sick of carrying your gold around, so you wanted someone to hold it for you. And like, you know, mortgages and other stuff just became as products of that business as time moved forward. But I, like, if it was just me looking at it, I'd look at maybe like, where did like pensions come from? Like, at the very, very start, like, and how did they act at that point? Was it some guy in the time you just gave money to and he invested? Like, what, what was there the actions that were going on at that point? Because um, sometimes that can be quite interesting, I guess. But again, this is why I suggest it's great to have people who are experts when you're a, a vendor or a partner, because then you can ask these questions. I'm conscious of time. Um, yeah. This has been awesome as a conversation. Though. Like, I love that we've like just cover all sorts of different ground in these conversations. But it's like you phrased a few things in a really interesting way that I hadn't actually thought of. So it's been helpful for me. Um, uh, I'm sure it's been helpful for the other guys as well. Um, Definitely. You, you've got my email address. So if you want to chat any more crap sometimes, do just let me know. Um, or any questions, serious questions, or anything. Open to answering. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You're very well. All right. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Grant today, and we wanted to highlight some of our favorite insights. First, you can leverage partners to often take the cover needed to launch provocative ideas. Second, what are the true rules you can break and which can you just bend? And last, if you widen your view of what the future looks like and the problems within it, and then narrow it down to create a tight solution to those problems, you will find success. Thanks so much, and we look forward to next time.